You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So if you haven't been with us in the summer, we're in this, um, we're in this series called Disordered Loves, The Seven Vices and the Remedies That Heal, and it's built upon three ideas that disordered love, our love becomes disordered when we love too much, when we love too little, or we love the wrong things. That love gets disordered when we love too much, too little, or the wrong things. And we can love the right things too much, or we can love the right things too little, and still get a disordered love. So it's not just about the target of our love. Uh, it's about the, the depth and the strength or the weaknesses of our love and how that love organizes our life. And what we've been doing is we've gone back to the, what's called the capital vices tradition, where we've looked around um, about 200, 300 A.D., where we saw people uh, like Cassius, and, and we moved up, and we saw people like Evagrius, and we saw people like uh, Gregory the Great. And then in the 12th century, we see people like Thomas Aquinas, uh, these philosophers, these, these Christ followers and philosophers, especially Aquinas, who sets the tone for a lot of intellectual thought in the West. And we are exploring how they understood what goes on inside of the human soul and how vices work. Some of these uh, church fathers and mothers, like Cassius and Evagrius, they went off into the desert not to seclude, uh, not to seclude themselves from the world or to, or to go in some sort of Christian bubble, but to try to explore what are the things inside of us that keep us from flourishing. And they discovered these vices, that there were these, these things we could not escape. And we've talked about greed, and we've talked about envy, and now we talk about anger. American rage. That's what they say, that we live in a time of American rage. Sociologists tell us that many, uh, the surveys and polls that are out, and I know there are always problems with surveys and polls. As a guy who's given to ethnographic practice, I can tell you there are problems with surveys and polls. But yet all of them, regardless of the source, seem to indicate along the same data. They say that one of three Americans say that they read or watch something in the news daily that makes them angry. And when broken down by race, they say 73% of whites say they get angry at least once a day, compared with 56% of African Americans and 66% of Hispanics. When, when broken down by um, socio-religious, uh, socio-political affiliation, they say 67% of those who lean toward the left side of the political aisle get angry, while 77% of those who lean toward the right get angry. When they, when they measured all of this by economics... They say that those who's, who make 150000 per year or more uh, and those who made under 15000 per year or more are actually less angry than those who make somewhere between fifty and 75000 per year. And they tell us that these reasons are things on all sides, that all sides point to these reasons of like injustice, of understandings of injustice or inequality or disenfranchisement or marginalization. They tell us that it's disappointment and unmet expectations. They tell us from both sides that, that people feel the American dream is fading, that the role of America in the world isn't what it used to be, that life isn't working out according to plan, that the gap between the rich and poor is widening despite economic growth and the middle class is falling in the ever-widening ditch. They tell us that the majority feels like a persecuted minority while the minority feels victimized by the majority. And when people do not believe that the American dream is alive as well for them, it, it becomes what they call the anger of perceived diminishment. 
And it's no secret, right? I mean, outlets from both politically conservative to progressive actually agree on one thing. That we're angry. And the one thing that society seems to agree on is the one thing that divides us. And that's the world in which we live. And then we see the violence. But really, if you've been paying attention, I mean, if you've, you know, unless you've been living in a cave or in a hole or in the desert, I don't think you need me to stand up here and tell you that we live in an angry society. And that's just it. A lot of us would say, well, it's social media. It's Facebook, Twitter, those kind of things. And that may be true, but sociologists wouldn't really agree with that. They would say, no, social media has just created the platform for the anger to be known. And what do you do when you have a mob of angry people and a person with a platform and a microphone to be angry? It makes angry people angrier. The platform just gave up. The social media just becomes a platform to voice the anger, which stirs up angry crowds, right? Because anger is a part of life. Whether it's expressed or suppressed, angry, anger is a part of life. We get angry at relatives, we get angry at kids, teachers, politicians. We get angry at pastors, church members. We get angry. It's just a part of who we are. It's a part of the human emotion. And, and we see it in Scripture. There's, there's no unexpressed, uh, there's no motion unexpressed in the book of Psalms, for example, where the psalmist gets obviously angry. And it comes from the mouths of prophets and priests. Even Jesus gets angry on more than one occasion. The question is not, do we get angry? The question is, does anger influence our lives? How much does anger influence our lives? That's the question. When I was little, I was bullied a good bit. And in the neighborhood in which we lived, when I was about probably eighth grade, I remember we used to play basketball together in Jeremy's backyard. And Jeremy and I were best friends and we would invite some other neighbors to come and play. And sometimes some neighbors we didn't like would come and play because we played basketball all of the time. And there was this one neighbor named Tony. And he was about 11th grade. And again, we're, we're all 8th grade. And Tony would come and he would try to school us in basketball. And, and in his way of schooling us in basketball was largely knocking me around on the court. He wouldn't knock Jeremy around on the court. He'd certainly knock, knock Joe around on the court because Joe was about... Uh, he was an 8th grader too, but Joe was about 6'1 and 300 pounds. And Tony was probably all of 5'6 maybe, you know, maybe a buck 50. I was, you know, like 5'1, heavier than I, I was more than what my neurologist continues to tell me. I was more than mildly obese back then. Let me just put it that way. Um, and, and Tony, he would, he, would, he would pick on us. And he would, he would throw me down and... Um, I would try to slash in, albeit very slowly, um, to the goal, and he would throw me down. And finally, I got so angry. Now, I was raised that you don't fight. But if you do, you better not throw the first punch. That's what my mom and dad taught me. If they throw the punch, I can get after it. But I can't throw the first punch. That was what I was taught. I wanted to throw the first punch. But instead of hitting Tony... In my anger, I hit Jeremy's dad's shed with all my might. I walloped that shed like it was a... I was like going all Mike Tyson on that shed. Just right in there, straight up, violent temper tantrum. Me in the shed. The shed won. 
Because then I couldn't play basketball because suddenly my hand looked like a softball. Now, Joe, who was all of 6'1 and about 300 pounds, saw what was happening. He knew that my mom and dad were not cool about the fighting thing. But Joe was a, um, was, was, had a very hard life, was being raised by his grandparents. And they were completely cool if he could fight. So he grabbed Tony, picked Tony up, threw him against the fence and started wailing on him. And, and I wanted to cheer him on, but I was too busy hurt, like, like nursing my hand. And so once Joe, uh, Joe got done with, with, with Tony... Um, Joe walked me back to, to my house, and I went in, and my mama, I, I said, I, I think I broke my hand. And my mama said, what, what did you do? And I said, I got, Tony was, was picking on me again. She said, well, what did you do? And I said, well, I, I, I didn't throw the first punch, mama, but I did hit a shed. And mama said, you broke your hand? I said, yeah. She goes, did it make you feel good to hit the shed? I said, at the time. And she said, well, you did that to yourself. And she went about cooking dinner. That's how Tammy Ligon rolls, y'all. So there I was with my softball swollen hand with fingers going all kinds of different ways. And over the course of time, it just healed on its own. I got no love from Mama because I hit a shed. And that was my own, in her words, stupidity. Anger has a way of getting to you, doesn't it? See, anger, believe it or not, and we'll talk about this part later, there's a, there's a good side of anger. There's a redemptive side to anger. But when anger moves away from being protective of the right things and corrective of the wrong things, and it gets disordered, it becomes destructive, it becomes a hellish habit, it becomes what the capital vice tradition calls wrath. They made a distinction that there's anger and then there's wrath. And that wrath is anger disordered. It becomes protected, protective of the wrong things and seeks to injure another. The, the, church is, the church is absolutely in agreement that anything that injures another, no matter the reason, is of a vice. And it is of the vice of disordered anger. See, anger can be caused by injustice, and Aquinas believed that this was actually good, that this was a redemptive kind of anger, that when we see things that we know are wrong and it stirs us and it makes us angry, that that's all right. And Aquinas would say, you just have to channel that. Don't let it get disordered. Move into that. Be protective of the right things and corrective of the wrong things. But Aquinas and all the other church fathers and mothers all agreed that the problem is that anger can become quickly disordered. It can move from being from a love of justice that is wanting to make right what's made wrong to a love of justice that turns into a desire for revenge or a desire to hurt the other. And I would say that the model of rightly expressed and targeted anger is Jesus. Aquinas argues that the Gospels describe Jesus as a human being with full complement of sinless emotions from sorrow to anger to delight, but whose character was nonetheless defined by the virtue of so if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. And so Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, this is what he says. He says, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin, which was the governing council of the day for the Jews. It was like the courts. But whoever says you moron will be subject to hellfire. 
So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and then come back and offer your gift. Now here's what I want to do. So Jesus got angry, and we're going to look at a text toward the end of the conversation where it says, in the text, Jesus got angry. So if Jesus got angry and then says, do not get angry because that is, is wrong, then we've got to make sure we understand what Jesus is not saying. Otherwise, Jesus is obviously contradicting himself, and so are the writers of the Gospels. And we know that can't be the case, so here's where, unfortunately, you've got to kind of look into the language, right? So the word anger there is... Orgizomenos. Everybody say orgizomenos. Come on, say it again. Orgizomenos. Because I'm going to use that word. Jesus is saying, do not get orgizomenos. Here's what orgizomenos means. It doesn't mean a moment of anger. It means carrying anger. It means letting the anger stew in you. The word literally sort of translates as nursing a grudge. Oh, you see that? That's what Jesus, Jesus knows we're going to get angry at stuff. We're going to see table, we're going to see injustices, and we're going to turn over tables. But it becomes wrathful, it becomes harmful, it becomes something that puts us in subjection to judgment when we let it become something that stews and settles and turns into a grudge. It becomes an anger that we carry. Little by little, it eats you up. It causes you to see the other as anything less than made in the image of God. It lets you see the other in a way to where we might be willing to insult. Where we might be willing to hurt or cause some sort of injury emotionally or maybe in worst case scenario, physically. It's the kind of anger that gives birth to murder. See, in our society, we're all about insulting. You just have to look at Twitter. Look at the person on Twitter who doesn't even know the president who insults the president. Or back in the Obama administration, look at the person on Twitter who didn't even know the president who insults the president. Or look at how people insult each other on Twitter because of whatever's going on. Or just listen to how they do it quietly in their breath. At the water cooler, even sometimes in church. See, that kind of, that kind of thing that, that we carry inside of our gut... That allows us, that gives us permission to injure another. That's the kind of anger that is vice. That's the wrath. And that's living contrary to the way we are wired in Christ. But it's so familiar and natural for us to let the love of justice turn into a perversion where we want to see the other as a villain. And I would argue in a society of what scholars and academics have called American rage, that it's prevalent. It's worked its way into the church. And I want you to look at the text for a minute. Look at Jesus' antidote here. We'll talk about that next week, some practices. Because what we'll do, we'll talk about the vice, then we talk about spiritual practices. So today's kind of the bad news, right? And then next week's kind of the good news, right? All right. I mean, we'll have some good news today. There's always good news at the Eucharist, right? Christ has always liberated us. All right, so, so Jesus says, after he talks about calling people moron, right? He says, so if you are offering your gift in the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. And I want to break this down to you because we missed this. 
All right, so the altar there, the gift, is a sacrifice. And if you were living in Jesus' day and you were going to make a sacrifice at the temple, you generally had to travel a long way. Are you with me? Like you had to pack up your gear. It could be a one-day travel. It could be a three-day travel. But you had to travel. You didn't just, you know, get in your Mercedes chariot and roll over into um, the temple court. You, you walked maybe. You know, maybe you got in your, your Toyota camel and, and, you, and, you, and you walked slowly with the sacrifice with you. Or maybe you were planning on purchasing the sacrifice. And, and you, you, when you, you start off and it takes days. It could take days. And I need you to know it could take days. And so here you are. You've got your sacrifices. you got your family. You pack up your gear. And you're headed off to the temple. And you're going to offer your sacrifice to God. All right? That's what's going on. And you've traveled two to three days to get there. And then you get there and the priest, you wait in line, right? Boom, boom, boom. You wait in line and the priest gets to you and there's your sacrifice and you hand your sacrifice over and you're ready to have your sacrifice sacrificed. And all of a sudden you remember that you're angry with your neighbor. What does Jesus say do? Come on, what does he say do? He says, stop and what? Go back. That's how critical this is. Look at the text. Look, go back. So here you are, you're like, I traveled three days and I've stood in line and it's finally our turn. And, and Jesus is saying, go back. And so you're like, hey, priest, uh, uh, be right back in three, six days. Seriously. And so you travel all the way back and you, you make it right. And then you travel all the way back. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you see the urgency here? Do you see the urgency? Because Jesus knows that if we don't travel back, the anger will stir and it will settle and it will simmer and it will give us permission to sacrifice our neighbor. Whether their emotions will sacrifice, their humanity we will sacrifice, that we would allow this anger to stir us and simmer in us so much that we would be willing to cause harm to our neighbor. And Jesus knows something that we forget in this society of American rage, who as the society of the kingdom of God should bear witness to something different in the society of American rage, right? Like as peacemakers rather than putt stirrers. But, but what we should do is we should help people understand, but first start with us. You cannot have right relationship with God and wrong relationship with your neighbor. You can't do it. You can disagree. You can disagree. Unity is not uniformity. You can disagree, but you can't seek injury. You can't insult. You can't. We can't, we can't give ourselves permission to do that. I can't give myself permission to let that anger turn to me so much that I want to insult. Now, I've got some very strict practices when it comes to anger in my life. Many times I practice them, and sometimes if I don't want to, I just don't. And we'll talk about that next week. So I'll let you be angry all week, right? Until <laughs> I'm so angry that he's talking on anger and didn't give his practices. <laughs> Email the elders. <laughs> so Paul, I think, is saying what Jesus is saying. Don't let your anger turn into nursing a grudge. Orgazamonos. Say it. Orgazamonos. Don't let that kind of anger do that. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26, then he would say, be angry and what? Do not sin. Let's read the rest together. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. And that's what he means. 
So when you look at this text and Paul says, be angry and do not sin, he is saying, when you get angry and you get provoked, don't let it simmer. Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. Libertarian, doesn't matter. Right, wrong, doesn't matter. Don't let it simmer. Don't go to bed with that. Because you'll wake up with that. And it'll root itself overnight. And then you go back to bed the next night and it digs deeper roots. Don't do that. Because that will destroy you. It's like drinking rat poison waiting on the rat to die. It destroys you. Me. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't let yourself be vulnerable. Don't make a reckoning. See, the thing about anger is that the target can be wrong. We're after the wrong things for the wrong reasons. The object is about me. My, 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 my. You're taking my, my, my. You're taking my, mine, 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 mine. You're taking mine, and I'm angry at you, and I've got to injure you or get you out of here or insult you or dehumanize you so that I can feel better or so that I can have what I want. See, this is where anger really piggybacks envy. Wrath really piggybacks envy because envy is about getting better when other people have it better. Getting bitter when other people have it better. And it's when then we get bitter that we see the people who have it better. And we don't want them to have it better than us. Or at least at the very least we want to feel better than them. So we do what we got to do to insult them. And that's why we have people in our society who like to fire off insults for no reason. Because it makes us feel better. Well at least I didn't get beat up by Tony. I got beat up by Shed instead. I don't know which one's better. And the thing is, the purposes can be wrong. The purposes of our anger can be wrong when it becomes about revenge or seeks to injure another, becomes a vendetta. Saint Ambrosia of Milan, he was an early church leader born in 337. He was a man known for his ability to make peace. He was a gentleman. He said this, and it's beautiful. No one heals himself by wounding another. So then why do we do it, right? Like, then what explains that? Everybody here knows that we don't, Heal ourselves by wounding another person. So why do we do it? And I would submit to you it's because of the vice of wrath. Because it's in our, it's in our souls. And we get anger and anger becomes the shovel to which it begins to plumb the depths of our soul. The brokenness of our soul. Which leads us to this place of, of injurious anger where we're willing to hurt the other. And it makes us feel better. Let's be honest. Come on now. Let's, let's be honest. Raise your hand if you had something to say of somebody and you knew it was going to hurt them, but you needed to say it because you thought it would make you feel better. Raise your hand. Okay, the rest of you are liars. You have a different vice. I'm just kidding. But, but, but now, now let's be honest. When you step back, I'm not going to ask this, okay, because then it'd be like three people like, yeah, it still feels good. Um, that looking back after the fact that you realize that it didn't really feel like it, it didn't really, it did, it did it heal you? It didn't heal you, right? Like it didn't heal you. It didn't make you feel more whole. You might have felt better because you got it out of your system. But at the end of the day, you're still hurt. If we're going to find healing without wounding others, we're going to have to tend to our disordered anger. So I want to give us a couple of things. Aquinas identified three areas, three areas where anger roots. All right, you ready? Say this with me. In the mind. In the mind. So in the mind is when we allow thoughts to simmer. 
It inflames thoughts. Something happens, it inflames thoughts. Raise your hand if you've ever replayed how you want to confront somebody that you're angry at. Raise your hand if you obsessed over it to some degree, like you're laying down at night and you're playing out the scenario. Right, raise your hand if in playing out the scenario and you gave it to them in your imagination, like you really lit into her, that it, that it made you even more angry. Oh, see, see, I like, this is a, by the way, this is the most amens I've ever gotten in the first service. Like, everybody's like, I'm just, I'm livid, Fred. I'm, I'm like Hulk. Yeah, like, like you play this out. And, 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 and this is where Aquinas would look at us and Jesus would look at us and say, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't play it out in your head. Because then it gives permit, then you give permission for it to take root. That's not good for your soul. But see, then there's the anger in our words. This is where social media gets us in trouble because everybody's brave behind a computer screen. Right? Like everybody's strong, got courage. When the other person on the other side's just some other random face. And we pop off with our passive-aggressive comments on Facebook or our memes or on Twitter. We engage celebrities who we don't even know just because we need to be heard, right? We tweet to the people that don't even know us so we need to because we need to be heard. That insecurity deep within us needs to be heard. And we pop off in anger. Or we talk about the other party or the other person with insults and dehumanizing language. And our country's leading that right now. We know that. That's not a secret. And yet Jesus says, by every word we'll be judged. There's something about the weight of words. And we don't tend to. Like every tweet we've ever tweeted and post we've ever posted is going to come into that bag. We're going to have to deal with those words somehow. We do these things for ourselves. And then in worst case scenario, since we live in an either or culture, we make the other person the villain. See, that's the thing about our culture. And I, I get this as a pastor. If you say one thing, then it means you're against the other. There's, it's not like it's possible to have a, have a tension that exists. We have to be an either or culture. You're either... Conservative or what? Liberal. Are you either liberal or what? And we have these binaries, and that's how it works. You're just a libtard. Libtard, that is an insult. Welcome to wrath, my friend. Welcome to wrath, especially when you know what that word means. Welcome to wrath. The language isn't helpful because it ultimately destroys us. Raise your hand if you've ever called someone a lot of names and they repented before you and became your best friend, like right there at the moment. Raise your hand if that ever happened. That's my point. You didn't look at a friend and go, you blah, 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 and they're like, I love you. Like, that's not how it works. It doesn't change anything. It destroys ourselves, and that's what Jesus is trying to say, is this destroys you. That's what Paul is trying to say, is this destroys you. This American rage, this wrathful anger, this injurious anger, this love of justice perverted is what destroys us. And only if we give permission to very real physical violence can we destroy them in a way that doesn't at least seem like it destroys us, but it just destroys us more because we kill their daddy and the kids grow up want to kill us. So we kill that kid and the kid's daddy grows up, kids' kids grows up want to kill us, and it's the figure eight of violence is where we are in our society. And yet here's the church, right, the kingdom of God, the people of Jesus, and we're supposed to model something different.
This contempt leads to a culture of contempt. So let's look at the other side of anger. And let's look at some responses. Let's look at Jesus. See, when disordered, anger turns to wrath and seeks to injure another and becomes destructive. But when the heart and mind of a Christian who is learning to live by the Spirit is willing to submit to the Spirit or maybe step away from the moment, this anger doesn't have to turn into an injurious anger. It can turn into something redemptive, something protective of the right things and corrective of the wrong things. I have failed at this, and I have hit this. It's just the way life works, right? We're going to fail at it, and we're going we're to do right by it. But we can't unsee what we've seen, and we can't unknow what we know. So I want to show you something that I have seen, that I know, so that you can see it, and you know, so that we can press in a different, press in in a different way. So here's Jesus, all right? Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. You ready? We'll close up here in a minute. Now he entered the synagogue again, Jesus, and a man was there who had a paralyzed hand in order to accuse him. They were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. And he told the man with the paralyzed hand, what? What did he say? Stand before us. That's, in, that's important. Then he said to them, the them is the religious leaders. The them is the religious insiders. The them are the socio-political religious leaders. And he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil, to save life or to kill? What's their response? They're silent. And after looking around at them, read it with me. With anger and sorrow at the hardness of their hearts, he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. What does Jesus do when he gets angry? In the text. He heals. Jesus targets his anger to do good, rather than targeting his anger at the people who provoked it. Exactly. Do you like Harvey? You want to color? Because Fred's a little boring. Jesus targeted his anger to do good. Did Jesus, did Jesus put it on the spot? What did he say to the man with the withered hand? Did he just heal him or did he say, what did he do? He created a face-off, didn't he? He created a face-off. He said, stand up here. Hey, come here. He, this is a standoff. This is a standoff between Jesus and the religious leaders. And he uses this man, in a sense, as, 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 as an example. Look, look, heal or kill? What do you think on the Sabbath? And, and they, they know the answer because that's how it is with anger. We know the answer. And Jesus then, it says very clearly, at the hardness of their heart, he's angry. And instead of targeting his anger toward the Pharisees and Herodians and like turning them into something or even chastising them or insulting them, what does he do? He heals the man. Here's what we do. When we find ourselves angry and the anger turns to wrath, if we can redirect it toward the good, the anger doesn't simmer and settle. This is why the church leader said that anger is associated with justice. Making right what's made wrong because when we see the things that are wrong in this world and it stirs our anger, the question is, do we try to eliminate the oppressor or do we try to free the oppressed? And anytime we try to eliminate the oppressor, we become oppressed by our wrath. 
Anytime we're building walls and fences rather than bridges, anytime we kind of cloister ourselves away from the other, despite the teaching of Jesus, we become protective of the wrong things and corrective of nothing. We give in. Jesus doesn't injure. And here's the thing, he didn't let his anger control him either. Now I want you to think for a minute. God is holy, and he's good, and he's merciful, and he's kind. And it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. If God is everything that God has said God is, then he has every right to be angry with the world that he's made, and our violence, and our insulting the other, and our dehumanizing the image bearers of God. And yet, what does he do? He extends God's generosity in the midst of his anger. He heals. He heals. Because Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, or destroy. The thief does the killing. Theology school people. The thief does the killing. The Christ does the healing. And every week we gather... We remember the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Every week we gather, we remember the God who, in light of all we've done, tells us to stand up here and to extend our withered hands and our withered hearts and our withered minds and our withered souls and heals us. It's like Ambrosia said, we do not wound heals by We do not heal wounds by wounding another. And so what Jesus did is he let society wound him. The God of heaven and earth put skin on and came and placed himself in submission to our rage. God placed himself in submission to our wrath. And he took on our violence. When he healed this man rather than did what the Pharisees wanted, what did the Pharisees and Herodians plot to do? To kill him. Did they eventually do that? Yeah, that's the point. Jesus submits to our rage so that he can save us from our rage. We have to choose to whom or to what we'll submit to. And every week we gather, we gather at the table. See, here's the thing about me, man. If I don't come to the table with you, I'm liable to submit myself to rage. Because let's be honest, church folk can be pretty nasty to each other, can't we? But knowing that I is your brother and you knowing that you are my brother and sister and look around, where whoever it is that's here, let's say you're angry at some other Christian in some other place, right? It doesn't matter. Let's say you're angry with the, with the fill in the burn Christian and you're angry with the making America great again Christian because that's how our society works now. And you're, you're angry at all these different people, but yet they're Christ followers and you're angry with them and you want to injure and villainize and you want to put passive aggressive statements out there and hurt the other and call them names, right? Like that's what we like to do. Here's the thing. Every week we gather, we come to the table. But anytime we want to avoid hearing the word of God or avoid the table, we're just avoiding, we're just avoiding healing and submitting to our own rage. Because we would rather just be angry. Because let's be honest, 
Some of us just rather would. And it's killing us. And so I say to you, release it. Now, we got practices we'll talk about next week. But here's where I think we all start. We start at the table and we remember that despite our rage, Christ welcomes us into peace. That's why Paul later on said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The Lord will handle the business. You tend to yourself in light of Christ. Tend to your anger and tend to your rage and submit to the one who submitted to that anger and rage so that he could save us from it. That is where we find our joy. That is where we find our peace. That is where we find our hope. So I want to lead us in a prayer, and then this side will come here, this side will come here as we sing, and then we hold on to it and we'll take it together. But I want to lead us in a prayer first, if you will. So let's all stand together, and let's pray. Father God, we, we, are, so, like we are so grateful that you do not leave us in our own rage. That in a violent world where it is all about, oh, just, it's all about antagonism, it seems. You offer a different way. And the way that you offer isn't the other side of the antagonism, which is what we often buy into. It's just a different side of the same coin of either or and against and opposed. And we let our love for what is right get perverted and turn into something that allows us to, to villainize or insult or injure another. Father, forgive us. There are some of us today who are holding on to anger and rage. In the name of Jesus, may your spirit set us free. May your love liberate us from ourselves, from our chains of anger. And Father, may this bread and this wine that is the body and the blood of Christ be the tangible reminder that you have liberated us. You have set us free. And you offer us life. Because you placed yourself in submission to the worst rage the reign of sin and death had to offer. An extraordinary crucifixion on a Roman cross as the people you loved placed you there as we see you now on the cross. And sometimes in our anger, Father, we leave, we scoff at you, we, we leave you there. Father, lead us away from that place into the empty tomb where we see the liberation of our anger so that we find peace. And so in this bread and this wine and this body and this blood of you, Lord Jesus, as you are here among us, as we take it, as each one of us take it in, as we receive it and take it into ourselves, may we take into ourselves peace and leave at this table the anger and leave the table a people who are committed to peace because we are loved by the God who extends kindness to us and leads us to a different allegiance and a different loyalty. Father, save us and deliver us so that we might join you in your work of deliverance. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.